Well, please take a seat. Uh, my name is Paul Rees, and it's great to have you here with us. And as we come to God's word, let's take a moment to pray again. Father, please reveal more of your glory to us today. Illumine our hearts by your Holy Spirit to see the good things that are now already here in your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I have a friend who knows someone who regularly meets with the royal family. They'll be at the king's coronation as an honored guest of the king. Now, that doesn't give my friend um, direct access to meet with King Charles, simply because they know someone who does. And neither does it mean that, that I know that I have a friend who knows someone, that I have any sort of relationship with the king. The king would need to initiate that, wouldn't he? And if the, if the palace are watching the live stream services and anyone drops out of the coronation, I'd be happy to fill in. But I actually have a greater invitation for you today. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Do you want to have regular access into his presence such that you could actually honestly say you have a personal relationship with the living God. Well, it's possible. And this invitation actually comes from God. So please open your Bibles again to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to begin, we're looking at this uh, little mini-series at the moment of the tabernacle. And it begins uh, in Exodus chapter 25. Through Moses, God invited the Israelites to give of their resources and their skills to build a special tent for him as a sanctuary for God to dwell among them. So if you look at 25, Exodus 25, verse 8, Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So they were living in tents at that time. And as God said to Moses, make me a tent and I will make my home with you. Put it at the center of the campsite as you journey to the land that I promised to give your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now note they are to build it exactly like the pattern that God showed Moses which means that actually every detail in the design kind of is God's detail. It's his design. It has some significance. Now, I'm not sure that I understand all the full significance of all the details, and I've, I've been intrigued to hear the different theories about the, the colors red, blue, and purple. I've had various options from different people. I'm loving that you're digging into this. But every detail does count in some way. And in the detail, God is teaching them how they can have access to him. What does it take 
for people like us to draw near to God? How can we have the, the blessing of God in our lives? That's what's going on here. So why look at this today? I mean, how is this relevant? Well, as the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, this is the shadow of the good things that are now here because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as John's gospel puts it in the very opening chapter, uh, he is the word who became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's a key, isn't it, to understanding the significance of the tabernacle. He is the reality to which the tabernacle is the shadow. That's why we're slowing down to look at each part of the, of the tabernacle. We're looking at this shadow to better understand the reality of Jesus so that we can better appreciate the good things that are now already here because of Jesus. And they can be yours today. They can be ours today. That's why it's exciting to look at the tabernacle. And today we're going to consider the altar of sacrifice. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to be living in one of the tents around the camp of Israel? Wherever you are in the different parts of the camp, uh, you'd get out your tent and you could look into the center. And there you would see this large tent peeking above uh, these eight-foot curtain perimeter walls. Uh, and you'd see a cloud hanging above it. This is God's tent. This is where God was present. He's residing with them as they wandered through the wilderness. As I said, this tabernacle was surrounded by this perimeter curtain. Uh, the overall dimensions of the courtyard would have been sort of less than the quarter of a size of a rugby pitch. On three sides, it has plain linen. Uh, but there was a section on the east side uh, where there was this beautiful embroidered uh, with blue and purple and scarlet yarn, this, this kind of gate. Your eye would be drawn to the beautiful gate, which was the only way to access into the tabernacle courtyard. And the tabernacle itself was positioned on the, the far west side of the, the courtyard. Now, can you imagine walking towards it, you would be drawn by the smell of roasting lamb and beef. I love those smells, don't you? The Bible says God likes those smells as well. And, um, oh yeah, and you're walking towards the tabernacle, and you're seeing this beautiful gate, and you know that the beauty of the gate just speaks of something of the glory of what's on the other side of the gate, because it's, it's mirrored in part the, the beauty of the whole cut, the first covering over the tabernacle itself. And actually within that tabernacle tent, there's two zones. There's the holy place uh, where the priests get to go regularly, and then there's the most holy place, which is the, this kind of this cube with golden walls, and there's a golden box and there's a, there's a golden lid on it with, with golden cherubim. And above the cherubim, God says, I will meet with you. 
And so you, as you're approaching this gate, you know that the beauty of it just speaks of the even greater beauty and the glory that was it, that's within as you're getting closer to God. So you, you get through the gate. And what's the first thing you see? The first thing you see is the altar of sacrifice. What's it for? What was Israel being taught to see this as the first thing as you approach the altar of sacrifice? Well, there are many different things that it speaks of. We're going to just consider a few this morning. What did it foreshadow? Well, firstly, it foreshadowed the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness. This altar of sacrifices reminded the people that they had sinned and they needed forgiveness before they entered into God's house and enjoyed God's presence. Now, outside people's uh, front doors, whether it's their flat or their house, you quite often see a doormat. Um, I used to love visiting Derek Prime in his place. He had a neighbor that wasn't that friendly because his doormat outside said, not you again, which wasn't very encouraging, was it? That wasn't Derek's doormat. Derek was always very glad to see you, but it was one of his neighbors. Well, the doormat, what's it there for? It's there to basically remind you to take a look at your feet. You got any dirt on your shoes? Because if you've got any dirt on your shoes, just spend some time getting that dirt off your shoes because you don't want to bring the dirt into the, into the house. It's a very gentle way of telling you that. And that's what the altar is there for. It's right here, the first thing you see as you enter through the gate. It is to remind the people that they are spiritually dirty. They're spiritually unclean through sin, and they must be cleansed before they can enter into God's house. God is utterly holy. You can't bring dirt into the presence of God. Just changing the analogy slightly, that of debt. If you get into debt... You are limited in what you are free to do with your money until that debt is paid. And to read Charles Dickens is to be reminded that there was a time when there was a, people were put into debtor's prison uh, if they, uh, until they paid their debt. Well, the Bible says that sin is a debt. Uh, and not until the debt of sin is paid can we have peace with God or enter into his heavenly presence when we die or be part of a sin-free creation, new creation that Jesus is going to bring on his return in the second coming. Uh, last month in the evening service, Liam preached on that amazing event recorded in Luke chapter 7, where during a meal at Simon the Pharisee's house, a woman with a notorious reputation washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Now Simon the Pharisee was not impressed at this, and so Jesus told him this story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him, five, owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them could repay him back, and so he forgave the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her 
tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. This woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever is forgiven, has been forgiven little, loves little. So while Simon the Pharisee perhaps had not been such a notorious sinner, he also had a debt of sin before God, which he could never repay. Religious people need forgiveness just as much as irreligious people. And the problem is that we often just don't see how sinful and guilty we are before God. Now, this woman knew that she was a needy sinner. But she'd found in Jesus the one who was able to forgive her sins. And out of great sorrow and great joy, she was showing how much Jesus meant to her, for she knew that she'd been forgiven much. Uh, I was speaking to a man uh, recently who told me that he thought he was quite a good person until he started listening to the series on the Ten Commandments. And with a degree of alarm, he realized that he too was a sinner. But what I see in him now is a great joy that he has repented of his sins and he's put his trust in Jesus. He's experiencing the joy of knowing forgiveness and that despite his sin, he is loved by God. For that is the second thing that this speaks of, the love of God and the hatred of sin. Uh, do you see... Uh, this altar, as we're walking in, it is telling you God loved the people, but he hated their sin. He loves the people, but he hates their sin. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. The people deserved those wages, for they were sinners, but God, who loved them, made a way that they could actually come into his presence. They needs to bring a lamb, a lamb that died instead of them, so they could be forgiven. So let's look at this. In, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 4, if you turn to page uh, 104 in the church Bibles to see what took place at the altar of sacrifice. So uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 page 104. If someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, they're to bring a female without defect. This is supposed to be an unblemished, uh, perfect lamb. You see, the lamb is to be without blemish. It's a picture of, the, of, of innocence. An innocent, innocent was to die in the place of the guilty. So read on verse 33. They're to lay their hand on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Do you see that? Putting their hand on the head of the animal while it's being killed. It's a personal identification with the sacrifice. It is a personal admission that my sin deserves death. And the lamb dies in my place. So look at verse 34. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and he's going to put it on the horns of the altar and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. 
They shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. What glorious words. To know you're forgiven. It doesn't get better than that. This is a powerful experience, isn't it? You're not going to forget this event, are you? There's no doubt about the seriousness of sin. The lamb is slaughtered in front of you. You're not going to forget that. The wages of sin is death. God hated their sin, but he loved them as his people. And so he made a way that sinners could draw near by bringing a lamb to the altar of sacrifice. See, that bronze altar was the place that not only showed the justice and judgment of God, but it shows the love of God who's making a way for sinners to be forgiven through a substitutionary sacrifice. That lamb in their place. And that's why so often in the Psalms, um, there is such praise and delight for God's courtyard. Let me quote from Psalm 65, verse 3. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Or Psalm 84, verses 1 to 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Why? Because there is the place of forgiveness. And there is the way of access into the Lord God Almighty's presence. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, hopefully you were listening to what Rebecca read from John chapter 1. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is all about. The cross is the altar of sacrifice. The blameless, innocent Son of God was the sacrificial Lamb who willingly offered Himself in the place of sinners. It was at the cross that Jesus was clearing the debt of sin for that notorious woman, making good on the promise of forgiveness He had offered her by dying for her on the cross. He was slain, substituting himself so that her sin debt would be canceled. And so that all who trust Christ can be forgiven. Have you trusted Christ? Have you been forgiven? Let's consider a little bit more about the, how the shadow speaks of the good things that are now here. Because... What we see, secondly, is that uh, Christ is the only true sacrifice 
for sin. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, page 1208, which is a long reflection really on this. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1208. The Israelites, convinced of their sins, came before God seeking forgiveness, and they, they brought the right animal sacrifices. They laid their hands on their head and confessed their sinfulness. But you know what? This could not give the worshiper complete forgiveness. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, why was it impossible for the blood of bulls and lambs and goats to take away sins? Well, I'm listening to some lectures at the moment by uh, David Gooding that he gave on the tabernacle. And he puts it this way. Animals... Do not go to bed with a bad conscience. My dog, Bronte, pretends to be chastened if she jumps up on the table and eats one of the burgers, but she really isn't kept at night, uh, awake at night worrying about it. And if we pay no careful attention tomorrow, she'll do exactly the same thing. She is not troubled by a conscience. Unlike us as human beings, we do have a conscience. This is one of the amazing, unique aspects of our humanity, isn't it? We have a conscience, and if we, if we do things that are wrong, it can be a tremendous burden on us. We experience the burden of guilt uh, for the wrong that we have done. And these Old Testament sacrifices were only illustrating what Christ would do when he came. Now, I still occasionally receive checks uh, through the post, and thankfully I've got one of these banking apps on my phone where I can just take a picture of the check, saving me having to go to the bank to actually physically put the piece of paper in. But even then, I have to wait a few days because they basically want to check, say, like, uh, if the British government still has money to give me my tax rebate back, they wait to see if they're good for the money. And if they're good for the money, it comes into my account, if they've got sufficient funds. Well, as people brought sacrifices to the tabernacle, God was basically giving them a check that they would be forgiven. But that check was not paid for until Christ died on the cross. All those sacrifices were shadows of this one reality. That none of those sacrifices, animal sacrifices, could ever actually really deal with the problem. But it's as they act in faith in the promises of God, they're actually trusting Jesus Christ as he fulfills the work promised by the shadow. And what's glorious about the fulfillment in Jesus is that Christ is the perfect and complete sacrifice for sins. These Jewish priests had very long days standing at the altar offering animal sacrifices. The work was relentless. Large numbers must have come with their sins and their animals, repeat sins since the, since the last time they sacrificed. Day after day, year after year, it would have never ended for those sacrifices could never take away sins. They were only symbols, though, weren't they? Pointing forward to the one great sacrifice of Christ who offered himself once. He didn't have to do it again. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 11, 
10 verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. There to keep standing, the job never ended. Jesus sat down, job was done. His once for all sacrifice perfects those who are sanctified, it says in in verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. These are the good things that are now here, that you can have full forgiveness. You, You know, we don't have to bring any animal sacrifices. You've not noticed many animal sacrifices going on here because it's done. And what we come here to rejoice in is it's complete. It's done. We're rejoicing in the sacrifice and the priest who's offered himself once for all so that all my sins are forgiven. That if you trust Christ, all your sins can be forgiven. What a thing to know you are completely forgiven that you are right with God, that you have access into the most holy presence of God. These are the good things that are now ours because of Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I received a text uh, from a friend called Gary on Wednesday. Uh, this week, and this is what he had in his text. 29 years ago today, 19th of April, 1994, I was arrested and charged with a murder that took place in Glasgow nine days before. At that time, I thought life was over. I was in darkness. I had no hope. And during my first weeks in prison, I went to prison fellowship meetings, heard the gospel and the call of Jesus. In coming to Jesus, I was taken from darkness and brought into light, and I was given hope. I share this to encourage you that whatever you may be going through today, Jesus can change it. Jesus can turn it around and bring good. Isn't that glorious? True for every one of us, for all our sins, if we come and put our trust in Christ. And if you're not a Christian here today, please learn from the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle. Because it's still, that shadow is still saying to you today, your sin is serious. But there is a way of complete forgiveness and full salvation, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. Because what you need to know today is that it's not automatic that you benefit from the death of Christ 2,000 years ago. You actually have to lay hold of it yourself. And my third point is just to illustrate this, really. There's another uh, kind of unusual thing about the the horns on this bronze altar. Um, A man who accidentally killed someone back in those camps in those days or had offended the king and now repented of it could flee to the altar in the tabernacle or later in the temple and take hold of the horns of the altar. And he would be safe there. But if he didn't flee for refuge, 
he was subject to execution. So if you could read this in 1 Kings chapter 1 uh, about Adonijah. Uh, Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar, it says in 1 Kings chapter 1. And then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and he's clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men. They brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. Solomon said, go to your home. The only place for refuge is to cling to the horns of the altar of sacrifice. Let me put that in New Testament terms. By faith, grab hold of Jesus. Full forgiveness is there. But you have to lay hold of Christ by faith. You need to admit your sin, repent of it, and grab hold of Jesus. Have you done that? Have you done that? As I invite the musicians and singers to come up, I want to give someone the opportunity to grab hold of Christ today because this is really the good things that are now here and they could be here for you if you've not trusted Christ today. I want to put a prayer up on the screen. Why don't you have a look at that prayer to see... If, if that's a prayer that you want to say today, it's admitting that you're, you're not worthy, that you don't deserve the gift of eternal life and forgiveness, that you, you, you're a rebel, that you need forgiveness. And it's thanking God for sending his son to die for you. Perhaps someone wants to pray that right now and respond to God. Let's bow our heads and I'll repeat, I'll say this prayer and I encourage you to quietly repeat it in the quietness of your own heart and mind if you want to make this your prayer. If you want to grab hold of the horns of the altar of sacrifice today, laying hold of Christ. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Well, if you've prayed that prayer for the first time today, this has been an amazing day, and I'd love to help you. I'd love to let you know how you can grow in your faith. So please come and chat to me afterwards. I'll be in the hallway for a little bit. If I'm not there, I'll be probably down the front. We're going to sing a closing hymn that is just full of joy of the reality that Christ died for us. Let's stand.
and sing his praises.